Moorhead, Minnesota, the home of Concordia College, lies across the state line of Fargo, North Dakota, which in the winter, I think, is a very bleak part of the country. All year, the community in Moorhead anticipates the annual Christmas concert. Maybe you've been there, or maybe you've seen it on TV before. Each December, a huge choir, full orchestra, they give a music performance of a lifetime in the concert hall at the college. But what's not known is that every year, the people in the community create actually a background for the concert, a 100 by 30 foot mosaic. And it's new every year. Beginning in the summer, about six months before the concert, the community designs a new mosaic, rents an empty building, and begins to paint. Hundreds and hundreds of people from the Moorhead community come in. Junior hires, young adults, adults, senior citizens, they paint the mosaic. And they paint by number on a large-scale design that has thousands of tiny pieces. And day after day, month after month, one little painted piece at a time, the picture of the mosaic finally takes place. And when everyone has finished the painting, an artist goes over the entire creation, putting the final touches on. And when the mosaic is completed, they place it behind the choir, and it has the appearance of an enormous, beautiful stained glass window like this. And this picture does not do justice, but that is an incredible mosaic right behind there. And each year they do a new one. And the weekend of the concert, those people who have actually help paint arrive early. And along with their friends and neighbors, throughout the building you can hear people whispering, you see that little green spot on the camel's foot? I painted that. I painted that. And every year in the middle of Moorhead, Minnesota, thousands of unknown ordinary people paint a tiny insignificant tile. And six months later the result is a spectacular, beautiful masterpiece. And that is Paul's point in Romans chapter 12. Um, as I shared last week in verses 4 and 5, is that you and I are members of a body. And we might think we have a, a tiny little uh, tile of mosaic that we paint, and it's not a big deal. But as Paul says that we all have a function, and when it comes together, it's a beautiful masterpiece. More beautiful than that mosaic. And that beautiful masterpiece is called the church. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says over and over, we is greater than me. He doesn't say that. That's our paraphrase. As you can see behind me in uh, the um, panels that we have, we is greater than me. And he's talking about that each of us have a role to play. And can you imagine, let's say, half of those volunteers at Moorhead, if they're not to paint a tile, what would happen? Or let's say one person were to do it? That'd be an incredible feat. They'd have to do it probably 24 hours a day. No, we come together. That's exactly what the church is about as well. I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're in the midst of a series in Romans chapter 12 where Paul is talking about that, talking about the importance of community. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 10. We've been going through this uh, chapter, one of the most prolific and popular chapters in the Bible, verse by verse. And it's been fun doing that because we can really kind of slow down and dig into the text. And this morning, I'm going to share a couple of verses in verses 9 and 10. But before we get there, the whole chapter is dependent upon the first two verses. Everything there and then chapter 12 flows out of those first two verses. And Paul says, And so, my dear brothers and sisters, he's looking back at chapters 1 through 11, And so, 
the 20 mercies that is talked about in the first 11 chapters. And so, because of those, my brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God for, for all that He has done for you. This is your living and holy sacrifice, the kind that God will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. And then verse 2, Paul says, don't copy any longer the behavior and customs of this world. He says, in fact, um, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then everything else from that point forward is dependent upon those two verses. And by the way, you, when it's mentioned there, it's not a singular you, it's you, the church. You together as a community. Even though we need to apply things individually, this is us together. So we come to verses 9 through 10. As Paul talks about this change of thinking, this transformation, we're not talking about like, oh, okay, uh, you know, I'm just going to make, make my mind to be a better person. And you, you can't do that on your own. You need God. You need a, a loving community to come across you, to help you. Because God and, and, a, and a community are the ones that can bring that out in our lives. I know, at least for me. So it's not like just a checklist and I'm just going to do this on my own. No, I have to be transformed first. And that transformation, by the way, is a continual action. It's not simply the day you were saved, although we praise God for that. It's an ongoing basis. It's a daily transformation. We get to verse 9. He says this. Now I'm reading on a New Living Translation. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up. Maybe you have an app. You can follow along with our teaching notes. But he says this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. I want you to underline that phrase, really love them. It's emphatic. Really love them. He's talking about this sort of genuine love. And then he goes into the rest of verse 9. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly onto what is good. Or in other translations, hate what is evil and cling on to what is good. And then he talks about love each other with genuine affection. In delight and hospitality for each other. Well, let's start with verse 9. Before I do that, let me pray. Father God, we give thanks for this morning. We thank you for each person that's here. And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. And God, that you would anoint these words, that you would multiply these words in, in this sermon in ways that, that are beyond um, my conception. And far beyond anything I can conceive and imagine. Uh, so, Lord, we lift our hearts and our minds to you, praising you, loving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. And as he's talking about this love thing, and sort of the, the, the title is verses 9 through 10, but really it's, what do we mean when we talk, what do we mean when we talk about love? If, if, you, uh, remember, if you, that kind of rings a bell for you, um, that's from the uh, uh, movie Birdman with Michael Keaton. I kind of stole that little line. What do we mean by what we, when we talk about love? Okay? And what he means, first of all, is that the Christian community, the church community, is a very special place. And what Paul wants the church to experience is true, deep, uh, deep community. He calls it koinonia. Give me your teaching notes. Koinonia means Christian community. We're, and we're talking about deep Christian community beyond 65 minutes on a Sunday morning. And he's going to enumerate that in verses 9 through 10, what Christian koinonia looks like. That transformation that takes place, 
takes place in our hearts and our minds. And as we're new people on a regular basis, and we, we in, in, in involve ourselves in this koinonia, this beautiful thing called the church, um, he outlines what that looks like. And he begins with love. Verse 9. Just don't pretend to love others. Really love them. Now that might be something very simple and straightforward. But what he's talking about, the whole thing about really love them, I want you to write this next to it. And it's also your, fill in, uh, your first fill-in for your teaching notes. Genuineness. Genuineness. When we say that we love each other, it's a genuine love. It's a deep-seated love. And that may take time, obviously, to get there. It's not all of a sudden you meet somebody and say, hey, man, I love you. Um, but it, 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 it's, a, it's a genuine love. And as guys, we have a hard time saying that to each other. It, it, it kind of sounds weird at times. My best friend growing up in Wisconsin, um, we got disconnected for some time. I went to uh, his mom's funeral this past week, and I had a packed Wednesday, and I had to juggle things to get there. But um, he, he was my best friend growing up, and we got reconnected five years ago. And we've been spending time together. He's not a Christian. Been sharing Christ with him. And his dad died a year ago. So within 11 months, he's lost both parents. And it's he was broken. So I drove out to Hudson, Wisconsin. And I just wanted to be there for him. Because it's one thing to, to, to send a nice text message, and I'm thinking of you praying for you, but actually to show up. And we had a class size of 35 students um, back in that day in Wisconsin in, in our elementary school and junior high and high school. And um, it was sad for me to see that only three of us out of the 35 actually showed up for Joe. And I, um, right after the service, they were going right to the graveside. And Joe was just broken, obviously. And I kind of squeezed my way into the family because I wanted to talk to him before they headed off for the committal at the graveside. And his, his nickname is Coos. Coos, look. Coos. I said, Coos! He turned around. And he saw me. And he came over and he gave me this huge hug. And he said, I love you, man. And I said, I love you too. Okay, guys don't normally do that. And it was such an endearing moment. And for us to know, it was genuine. Without pretense. Without fake. And that's what... what uh, Paul is trying to get at is when we talk about, what we mean when we talk about love is that it is genuine. There is no pretense. Um, when we talk about love, it's the fact of its genuineness. And when, and when, in fact, when Paul uses the word here, really love them, or in some translations, sincere, the word actually means with a, without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. And back in that day, the, the hypocrites, if you use that uh, English word, were actually play actors in the first century, first century theater. And they would have different roles, and they would change um, from different scenes. But the church must not be hypocritical. It's not to turn itself into a stage. For love is not a theater. It belongs in the real world. And I like what one writer, John Murray, says, if love is the sum of virtue, and hypocrisy is the epitome of vice. Love is to be genuine. And probably, if you're thinking like, oh, what, what does hypocrisy look like with love? I've never seen that before. One easy example is Judas. As he comes up to Jesus on the night of his arrest, Judas walks up there and says, greetings, Rabbi, and then he kisses him on the cheek. Okay, that, that's hypocrisy. 
And Paul says we should not have that in the church. Fred Rogers, the creator of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, a television show that aired from 68 to 2000. I actually grew up with Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. In fact, there's a new movie coming out with uh, Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. If you haven't seen the trailer, it's just... It gives me chills what, what that movie is going to be about. But in 1997, Rogers won the Achievement Award at the Emmys. And he, got, he came there with his wife. And this is an excerpt of his speech. So many people have helped me to come to this night. They love me. Some of you are here. Some are far away. Some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take along with me 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? Those who have loved you and wanted what was best for you. Ten seconds of silence, he said. I'll watch the time. And you watch the video and ten seconds goes by. And then after that, he says, whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. And then when you watch the video of during that ten seconds, these glamorous, self-sufficient celebrities... I mean, you name the top celebrities in the late 90s, and they're all there. And all of a sudden, when he does that 10 seconds, it just brings the whole thing to a pause. And it's a poignant moment. You've got actors and actresses just crying. They're thinking about the people who have loved them. Remarkable. And think for us, too, that we, are, uh, that we have special ones who have loved us. We would not be here without them. Some here, some far away, some even in heaven. And we also have spiritual parents. And I want to ask you the question as we move on, will you be that for someone? Will you be the person that looks around in our church and says, you know what, I'm going to be sort of like a spiritual parent or a spiritual mentor. I'm going to love with a genuine love for that person. Will you do that? Because I think for us, we can volunteer, we can move from task to task, but actually to genuine love one another. And for us, our desire is to be a, a church community <clears throat> marked by love. Let's do that. Next, what do we mean by when we talk about love? It's not simply genuineness. It's also discernment, number two. Take a look at verses, verse 9, the second half of verse 9. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. In other words, hate what is evil. Cling on to what is good. Now, it seems sort of like a, a, a contradiction. First, Paul's talking about love, and then he moves to hate. It's like, what in the world is he talking about? But if you really love people, if you have a genuine love, and you see evil and wrong that's happening in your life, you don't hate them, you hate the wrong and evil that's occurring around them. True love abhors, hates, hates wrong and evil. In fact, those two terms in that passage, in the original language, when it says to hate what is wrong, hate is vehement, it's strong. And then also that cling on to or hold tightly is also emphatic as well. And he's saying you've got to have discernment. You've got to have discernment when you love the people in your lives. Because true love is not passive about evil. That we have, should have a revulsion when we see the wrong and evil of this world. And I don't have to remind you, but simply in this past week, we've had three mass shootings in the United States. Last Sunday, it was in California, three people dead. And then yesterday in Texas, 20 killed, 26 wounded. In Ohio, not too long after that, nine dead. 
That should revulse us. Instead of saying, oh, it's another mass shooting, that should stop us right in our tracks. The Pope offered prayers for the United States for those shootings. And we should as well. Let me pray. God in heaven, we hate what is wrong. We hate what is evil. And this is evil. The loss of innocent lives. Moms and dads doing grocery shopping in Texas and getting shot down in a supermarket. Um, People at this nightclub in Ohio having a good time, enjoying life, getting shot down. And it's got to stop. Lord, help us to take action, to pray, to do what we can in our spheres of influences. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody said? Amen. It's, it's, it's to hate what is evil. It's to hate what is wrong. Conversely, we ought to have this affinity for good. It is actually to cling on to good, because I think it's in short supply these days. Cling on no matter what happens. But to really love and to have that kind of discernment, I know for me and for what I want to do, I need your help and you need my help. That's why Paul begins the letter with a plural you. We can't do this on our own. We can't paint the mosaic on our own. We need help with each other. Help with each other to do this together. And yet sometimes we think, well, I'm doing it, but that person over there may not be doing it. It reminds me of a fable by uh, uh, Aesop. Aesop's fable where it's, it's about the belly. If you uh, recognize this, it's, it's actually very interesting. But the fable is this. So you got the, the arms and the legs and, and the mouth of the, of the body um, doing all the work, and it seems like the belly isn't doing any work. It just kind of receives the food. So one day, the arms and the mouth and the legs, they have a meeting. They say, we're not going to do the work anymore until the belly actually does something. Okay? It's a fable, remember that. Um, and they go on strike. Uh, the, the hands start stop, they stop grabbing the food. The mouth stops eating the food, obviously. The legs stop going to the market to get the food. And, and they're like, you know, we're not going to do anything until the belly really starts to do its share of the work. Uh, but pretty soon, the mouth gets parched because there hasn't been any food. It's dry. And pretty soon, the arms can't move anymore because there's no energy. And pretty soon, the, the legs can't walk anymore because there's been no food for weeks. And the body gradually dies. And I think in the same way, that's when we're talking about, as when we talk about love, what it means when we talk about love is that we do it together. Each of us ha- have a function. And then in doing so, we have discernment. Next, what we mean when we talk about love is affection. In fact, in verse 10, first part of verse 10, love each other with genuine affection. I'd like you to underline that phrase, genuine and affection. A, a better translation for me, I grew up with this, I, I like it better, is be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And if you want to write this down, be devoted and brotherly love are working off the same root. It's where we get the word Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is the city of? Yeah, exactly. And he's saying, which is remarkable, I think we can just kind of gloss over this. Paul, Paul is saying, okay, <clears throat> this love that we need to have in the church 
It's got to be the kind of love that you have with your, your blood relatives, your sisters and your brothers and your parents. That's the kind of love he's talking about. It's not hyperbole. He's not using the illustration. He really means it, that that same kind of love that you have for family members is the same kind of love that you ought to have for people in the church community. And it's absolutely radical in that day to say that. That for the Roman churches, that they're going to have this kind of devoted love, this Philadelphia love. And even with our brothers and sisters, children and parents, uh, when they develop radically different views than us, different lifestyles, she's still my sister. He's still my brother. Uh, they are still my parents. He's still my dad. In the same way in the church, people that we know, they might develop different ideas and different viewpoints, different worldviews. Uh, they're, they're still my brother and sister in Christ. And I love them completely. It's devotion. That's number three in your teaching notes. What we mean when we talk about love is devotion. Devotion. Real love is putting others first and being so devoted to them that you're with them. You walk alongside them. You help them when they fall down. And you walk alongside them in their successes and their failures. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Elton John reflected on his father. And by the way, if you haven't seen Rocket Man yet, it's an incredible film. And Elton John says this about his dad. He wouldn't hold me. He wouldn't say he loved me. I was afraid of my father. I walked on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. And he's been dead for a long time now, and I'm still trying to prove things to him. Asked what he meant by the reporter, John replied, I still do things today and say, Dad, you would have loved this. Elton John's father died in 1997 without ever seeing him play live. And the only kind of physical touch, affection, that, that Elton John received from his dad it was when his dad beat him. And he says this, my mom, my mom I can't do the, the English accent to that, I'll do my best. My mom always says, that's just the way we did it in those days. And it, didn't, and it didn't affect you. And Elton John says, I'd say, what are you talking about? It affects me every single day. That's not a devoted love. A devoted love is where we come alongside each other and love each other. It's where we walk alongside one another. That no matter what happens in the other person's life, it's where you say, I am there. I'm going to help you up when you go through times of struggle. I'm going to walk alongside you when you can barely walk. And I think a great illustration of this is Chris Norton. Chris Norton was a student at Luther College down in Iowa. And he got into a horrible car accident his sophomore year. And he played on the football team, but he was paralyzed from the waist down. And he couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair. But he was determined to walk across the stage for his graduation diploma at Luther College. And so he worked with physical therapists on these um, uh, sort of braces that had you know, great technology that helped bring his muscles back because his muscles had atrophied, just to be able to walk a little bit. And his goal, his goal and his prayer was to make it across the stage. And then his girlfriend was there with him as well. And here's the video. Christopher Norton.
Who can you and I walk alongside and to help somebody receive a goal in their life? How can you and I just reach out and help someone up? Maybe not in a wheelchair, but in a time in their life. And to actually to be there, that they can lean on it, as you saw in that video. Every time I see that, it just brings chills to my spine. I'm like, what can I do in my own way, in my own manner? That's devotion. Walking alongside each other. Now, I want to pause for a moment because I, I think some of us, we have people in our lives who have perhaps betrayed us or who have wronged us. And this whole uh, love thing, what do we mean when we talk about love? It, it might for you right now be sort of a nice cliche. What do you deal with those difficult people when your wife leaves, leaves you, when your husband leaves you, uh, when your kids won't talk to you any longer, which we're seeing more and more in today's society? What do you do when a friend turns on you, a business partner, what have you? Paul comes to that in the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about that, okay? All right, what we mean when we talk about love is it's, it's not only uh, genuineness, it's not only discernment, it's not only devotion, but also, as Paul gets into here, it's honor. All these are tied to love. He says, take delight in honoring each other. In another translation, it's, it's to honor others above yourselves. That's what it means to honor. It's where you take the back seat. It's where you kind of step under that person. And for some of us, we don't want to do that. That's very, very hard. And the word honor means that we actually look at someone or something as valuable and precious. And this has deep theology to it. Because for us, we have never met a person who is not made in the image of God. Every single person has been made in the image of God. Yes, your mother-in-law is made in the image of God. That neighbor that cranks his stereo at 10 o'clock at night and you're trying to put your kids to bed, he's made in the image of God, okay? Packer fans. We'll move on. No, no. They're made in the image of God, too. Somewhat. All right, um... But no, every person is made in the image of God. And, I, and, I, and I, something that's really struck me is that when we take time to honor them by listening to them, you may not see this honor, but it actually is. It's where you put yourself back, you, and you may have a thousand, I was, I was in a breakfast meeting last week, and there was like five or six things I wanted to say, and I was thinking about this passage. I was like, stop. The other person's talking. Just listen to them. Don't try to like, yeah, I've done that before, or yeah, I'll, let me tell you about something else that may supersede what they talked about. No, just listen. I want to honor that person. You can honor a person simply by listening. You can honor a person by being aware of their hopes and joys, their prayers. Maybe a question for you to ask uh, after the service is actually go up a person that you know and say, how can I pray for you? You're putting another person first. How can I pray for you? And then to write that down. Most people, when you ask that, Christian or non-Christian, what have you, they will answer that, that question. How can I pray for you? And for us to, to think about that the people that we come across are not just an average person. They're extraordinary. They're a child of God. 
They're precious. And we're, we're called to honor them. And that might be difficult for some of the people in your life. And I love this story about honor. A well-known leader was invited to speak at a leadership event some, some time ago. It was a leadership event that spanned several days. And he was scheduled to, sp- to speak on Thursday. And then on Friday, former President uh, George W. Bush and his wife Laura were going to speak as well. So that Friday afternoon, while everybody was waiting for the president and the first lady to come through the doors, uh, this leader began to talk to just a random stranger next to him about President Bush. And it was very obvious this guy was not a Bush fan. Um, He said, I don't like him. Uh, Never liked him. Didn't like his policies. And that was just the warm-up, the leader said. This guy went on and on specifying things that he didn't approve of and why. But suddenly the door opened. A soldier walked in with the American flag and then hail to the chief played. And former President George W. Bush came walking down the aisle holding his wife Laura's hand. And this leader glanced sideways because everybody was clapping. Everybody was on their feet. He glanced sideways at this guy who said he couldn't stand President Bush. And this guy was clapping. He had tears coming down his eyes. That's honor. Sometimes honor, perhaps, isn't so much the person as it is the office. And in that moment, this leader writes, my neighbor was no longer a Democrat or Republican. He wasn't a fan of Clinton or Obama. And and Bush, he was simply a citizen of the United States freely offering honor. If not to the man, then the office. And the feeling in the room, this, this, this leader writes, was electric. Everyone showed honor. And you and I are supposed to show honor to those in government. We may not like them, we may not like their policies, but we're called by God. Romans 13, right after this one, talks about honoring those in authority. If you play sports, or your kids play sports, rather, if your kids play sports, show honor to their coach, which, by the way, doesn't happen as much, right? Show honor to the coach. As, as that coach is leading your, your son or your daughter, you may disagree with the strategy. You may have a better pick and roll, or you may have a better plan for that goal, that, that penalty kick. And then after the game, it doesn't happen, and you want to tackle that coach or do something, as we see in the news all the time. Honor that coach. Maybe write them a note of encouragement. It's a good practical way that we can do that. If you're a student, honor your, your teachers and your professors. You may not like them. And they may not like you, but, but maybe write a note. Maybe write a note and, and to say how much you appreciate them. It's where you take the back seat with your feelings and you honor them because they're an authority over you. Or maybe it's your boss. Maybe deep down you think you're smarter than your boss. And you need to still show your boss honor. Maybe you like to be the boss someday, but before you can learn to lead over someone, you need to learn to lead under, and that is what honor is all about. It's leading under. Or maybe if you're married, you don't particularly like your husband or wife right now, maybe they're not the person you want them to be, honor them. If you treat them as as ordinary and common, they're not going to feel empowered to become a better person. Right, Pat and Kathy Gillespie? Where are they? We're in the back now. They told me to include them in this, uh, this example here. So Kathy, you've got to honor Pat. Right? 
All right, Pat, you got to honor Cassie. <laughs> but in doing so, they have the opportunity to become a better person. And then when you honor them, you give them the opportunity for them to rise and to accomplish what God has for them. What we mean when we talk about love is that it takes an entire church community. It's for us coming together. And to really love is difficult. To really love is hard. When we do our little part here at Maple Grove Covenant Church, we paint a little piece of the mosaic. We do our part. And over time, that mosaic turns into a beautiful masterpiece called the church. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for who you are. You loved us first. You gave us the capacity because of that to love others. And love is hard. And to get the love thing right takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of forgiveness. It takes a lot of vulnerability. So Lord, whatever word that resonated with people in um, audience today, and for those who are watching on video cast as well, I pray, God, that they would take the next step, whether it's genuineness or discernment or it's devotion or it's honor. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.